When I was a little guy, I went on this hike with uh, like a boys' brigade. It wasn't the Boy Scouts, but it was that kind of a thing. And I think I was about 10 or 11, and we were on this trail, and what, they, what, the, what the, the leaders had done was they said, hey guys, we, we hid your lunch down at the bottom of the hill, and, and uh, you've got to run down and find it. So everybody started running, but the, but the thing about it was it was a very narrow path. Really, it was only one man wide type of a thing. And so we were all running in single file. You really couldn't pass each other because there was a very steep hill on one side with trees and there was a very steep hill going down on the other side with trees. And so even though the counselors had kind of put it out like this was a race, it was a little more like an IndyCar situation. Right? It's like, is there going to be much passing? I don't think so. And so we're all running in single file down this hill with this winding path. And I thought to myself, you know, there's probably a faster way down. Why don't I not follow and instead just go down the side of this hill. So I stopped following, and I decided I'm going to beat you guys to the bottom of the hill, and I started running down the side of the hill. And let me tell you, I did beat them down to the, to the bottom of the hill. Uh, unfortunately, I got an involuntary lesson in physics on my way down, because as I started running, I started going faster and faster, and my feet could no longer catch up. And I kicked the root of a tree, and I went head over heels, and I started rolling and banging into sticks and all the way down. And I was bruised and bloodied and battered. And thankfully, I didn't break any bones. But it was like that scene out of The Princess Bride. As you wish. That's what was going on. During the time of the Reformation, which was 500 years ago this month, there was a teaching that was prevalent that caused the church to run after their salvation in a way that their little ecclesiastical legs could just not keep up. And it was burdensome to the church. And in the same way that I went to a crash and burn because my legs could not keep up, this prevalent teaching during the time of the Reformation caused the church to run towards this impossible finish line that really only the perfection of Christ could cross. And in, and and. As a result of that teaching, it was that Christ was not sufficient for your salvation. What was being taught 500 years ago was Christ was necessary for your salvation. Christ got you started for your salvation. But it was you that actually brought, through your works, the assurance of your salvation. Today's reading is from Galatians chapter 2. In a minute, I'm going to read verses 16 to 21. We've been going through the five solas of the Reformation. Sola is Latin for alone. And these, these five teachings from Scripture really were just ways that the Reformers at the time, that God providentially used them to draw the church out of error and to recover the gospel, to recover this good news. And so we looked at Sola Scriptura, which is the Scripture alone. Not the Scripture and the guy, in the, the guy in the pulpit are both the authority. The scripture alone is the authority. And the guy in the pulpit bends his knee to that. And then we looked at uh, grace alone, sola gratia. It's the grace of God alone. It's not grace plus what it is that I'm up to. My works, my life. And then we looked at sola fide, faith alone. That it's faith in Christ alone that saves you. Apart from all of your work, apart from your life. I mean, it's the most scandalous thing you could say at, at, at the time, to say that it, 
your salvation is totally contingent on what Christ did and it has nothing to do with your performance. I mean, it was just totally scandalous, faith alone. And this morning, as I read from Galatians 2, 16 to 21, we're going to look at the next uh, pillar that was used at the time of the Reformation to draw the church back to the gospel, and that is solus Christus, which is Christ alone. Galatians chapter 2, 16 to 21. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is God's word. Now this word gospel that we celebrate each and every week that you hear all the time in church, it, mean, it, it means good news. It means something has taken place that's of great benefit to you. News, by very definition, has nothing to do with you. You can't affect it because it's news. It already happened. If you go home this afternoon and you watch the news, you can do zero about what you're watching. You can, do, you can do lots of things moving forward in, in terms of the implications of what you're watching. But you actually have no power over the news because it already happened. So this gospel is good news. It's something that already happened that you have absolutely nothing to do with that has radical implications for you. This morning we're going to look at two things from this passage. Two gifts of God's grace that, uh, that are revealed here that, that shine a spotlight on Christ alone. Um, and here's, here's what they are. It's that God takes away the guilt of sin hanging over you, and then he increasingly loosens the grip of sin that's hanging on to you. There's the guilt of sin and the grip of sin, and God is in the business of eradicating both of those things. And that's what Paul gives us here. So here's today's sermon in a sentence. The guilt of sin is removed by the cross of Christ, and the grip of sin is being removed by the Spirit of Christ. So we're going to look at how our guilt of sin is removed by the cross and how our guilt of sin is being removed by the Spirit. So if you're new to church, I'm going to just say this. If you're new to the Bible or you're exploring Christian faith, there's two words that you hear all the time in church, and I'm going to be using them today. These two words, justification and sanctification. You see, like these big legal terms. I want to explain this very quickly. Justification is a one-time act. Sanctification is an ongoing work. Justification is a one-time act by Christ outside you on the cross. Sanctification is an ongoing work of the Spirit inside you, right, by, by God's grace. Both happen by God's grace. Now, the false teaching that was taking place in Galatia is the same false teaching that was taking place 500 years ago this month in the Reformation, which is the same false teaching that can take place today in Canada. And the false teaching is essentially saying you're not saved by a one-time act outside you. 
What's saving you is the ongoing work inside you. It seems, it, it doesn't, it, it can seem almost right because of the way that we think as North Americans, we're pragmatic and it almost seems right to say, well, yeah, well, what's saving you is there's this ongoing work of the Spirit and you're growing in your faith and you're growing in God and you're pleasing God more and more. And, and so, of course, at the end, God looks down and he says, it's clear that you love me. It's clear that you worship me. You know, look at how much you want to hate your sin and love your Savior. On the basis of all of this beautiful reform, welcome to heaven. That almost seems like that would be right because of the way we think as pragmatically. But it's totally false. That's not what's saving us at all. That's actually a byproduct of it. But that was what was going on in Galatia. That was going on in the Reformation. still going on today. The way to think about it is that what makes, it so t- what makes that, ter- that teaching so toxic is that if Christ made your salvation possible... And the life that you live this week when you leave the doors is making your salvation actual, then Christ is not the Savior. You're the Savior. So that's the problem. So Christian faith is described as adoption. If, um, imagine a young child who's adopted into a family, and they walk into the house, and the wide-eyed adopted child says, Is this my house? And the parents say, Yeah, this is your house. And they go into the kitchen, and they see the food, and the child is blown away, and the child says... Is this my food? The parent says, yeah, that's your food. The kid goes down the hallway and opens the door to their room and sees their bed. They've never had a bed before. They've never had their own room before. And they say, is this my room? The parent says, yeah, that's your room. That picture of adoption is consistent with the doctrine of justification. Now I'm going to tell you what they were doing in Galatia and Reformation and today. The adopted child walks into the house. The parent is holding the adoption papers in their hand. Is this my house? Let's not get ahead of ourselves. You can stay here. We'll see how things go. The child goes into the kitchen and opens the fridge and says, Is this my food? I'm going to feed you today because you've been good. It was a great car ride. You're very obedient. We'll see how things are tomorrow. The child goes and opens the door and sees the bed and sees the room and the child says, is this my room? And the parent says, you, we, you know what? We're just, we're not, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Let's not make any commitments yet with the adoption papers in their hand. That is the false teaching of not Christ alone, but Christ plus the life that you're living. That was what was going on in Galatia 500 years ago in the Reformation and still today. Reverses the assurance of faith. That picture I just gave you, the adopted child saying, is this, my, is this my inheritance? And the parent saying, let's not get ahead of ourselves. That's 1545 Council of Trent. That's precisely what it says. And so, we have this gift of the guilt of sin being removed by the cross of Christ. Let's look at this. In verse 16, it says, by the works of the law, no one will be justified. And you know, most people, and I mean not just you know, in the church, but most of your neighbors... Everybody that you know, who knows you're a believer, who knows you're a person of faith, you know, really, most of them think that, hey, what really what God is after is better behavior. Live a good life and God will be happy. And a lot of them are thinking, well, I can do that and free up my Sunday mornings. I mean, I don't need to go to church. I don't need to believe in God. Really, if what God is after is like, let's all just live a good life and love our neighbor. I mean, I don't, you don't need Jesus for that. And it's true. If that's what the Christian faith was about, if that's really what God, if really what ultimately God wanted was better behavior from you, 
then you, you hardly need Jesus if that's really all that he's up to. But that's not all that he's up to. That's not the Christian faith. It's not live a good life. That's what God's after. Christian faith would be totally useless if that's all that it was. If Christian faith was just, hey, you know, it's, just, it, it's this thing that gives me, makes me you know, feel better about my suffering. 2018, weed is going to be legal in Canada, and that'll do the job. But you don't need Jesus if, really, if Christian faith is just about, like, let's get through the day. Right? Just get some weed. That'll get you through the day. Legal next year. And I'm like, oh, no, he's advocating for weed. I'm not. I'm just using it. Trying to rock your world. You can, I'm going to explain this to you. All the children are like, the children are in this morning. Kids, don't smoke weed. Your pastor's not telling you to do that. Your pastor's using a, a rhetorical device called sarcasm. I apologize. Okay, so now that we're clear and all the parents are angry with me, let's move on. What is God actually after? It's not, it isn't this good behavior. When you have, the only way to know is to zoom out. God's plan from the beginning was life with him. That's what God is after. Life with him. And we all have a, co- a common enemy called death. God didn't create death. Adam's sin brought death. We're all born into sin, which is why all men and women die. God has placed eternity in our hearts. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 1 tells us, which is why death is not natural for us. Death is not normal. We try and tell ourselves death is a natural part of life, but it's not. It's hard to face. That's why we don't even have funerals and really sit in the morning of death. We call them celebration services, and we try and use the word life about a thousand times during the celebration service. We want the casket closed. We don't want to look at it. We want a picture of them at their best. We say crazy things when we are at a funeral and they do have an open casket. We say to people, oh, they look good. Do they look good? I'm not trying to do a comedy monologue here. I'm being real. I'm poking at something. What was God really after? Better behavior from you? No, he wants life with you. He created us for life with him. And that is broken because of sin and that sin brought death. So God has a solution for death. He has a solution for our biggest problem. You don't need to roll out of bed on Sunday morning and come in here for me to talk to you about something that's not life and death. But every Sunday that we gather, we're celebrating something that is life and death. We are celebrating something that is God's solution for our greatest problem. His solution for death, of course, is that he would come to give life in him and with him. So his ultimate goal was not to get better behavior from us. He justified us so he can get his eternal life to us. So the the reason why Paul says, by the works of the law, no one will be justified, is because the first thing that the law does is it draws our attention to our need. That's what God's law initially is for. In God, there is no darkness. He cannot preside with darkness. We're all born into darkness with our hearts. We've all been polluted in some way by our darkness, if we're honest. The world is the way it is because of sin and darkness. And the reason why no one can be justified by keeping the works of the law is because the job of the law is to expose darkness. The law cannot deliver us from darkness. Keeping it can't deliver us from darkness because that's not its job. So God can't be after better behavior because the better behavior doesn't solve our ultimate problem. It can't. When we zoom out and look what God is after, I mean... That's grace. The gospel of grace in Christ alone is that in Christ alone there is no darkness. And in Christ alone we are being delivered by darkness. 
This is the good news of the gospel. United to Christ, now, for those of us here who have faith in Christ, the law has a different use. It no longer condemns us and exposes our darkness, like a, like a searchlight shining on a prisoner. It's, it's now, it's a spotlight for us that guides our path. This is what God's law does for now, for us now as believers. There is no condemnation because we don't have to keep it because Christ kept it. So now it guides. It's this loving guide. And that's why... Paul says in verses 17 and 18 there, he throws in this little thing, hey, we're going to make Christ a servant of sin. Why does Paul always throw these little barbs in there? The reason why Paul's like, no one will be justified by the law. Oh, P.S., just in case you go down into this lawless ditch and think it's mean like, oh, great, I can live how I want. He's like, why would we make Christ a servant of sin? And then he gives this image. Why would I, why would I build up what, I've t- what, what has been torn down? It'd be, it's like saying that the, the God comes into your life by his great grace and he saves you by grace apart from your works, Christ alone. And then as he saves you, he, he looks into that heart and he goes, there's some mold in those walls and we're taking them down. But then as God, by his great grace and by the guidance of his word, his law, starts showing you the mold in your heart and, and, and starts tearing it down, what Paul is saying is we don't build that back up. You don't, if somebody's demoing your house because you have a mold problem in your basement and they start taking a sledgehammer to the walls, you don't go down and be like, hey, I need that. I need that wall there. I like that wall there. I kind of like to remember, you know, and you, here's the guy like, we got to get rid of this wall and you're down behind and picking up the bricks and you're putting them back up. No, what? <laughs> my recreation room. No, you don't do that. You're like, that's got to go. I mean, it has to go. I mean, I loved it, but it has to go. And the reason it has to go is because what I loved is actually contaminating the house. Do you understand? This is the picture. So when God's law comes in and it starts to do its renovating work, Paul says, you don't, re- you don't build that back up. Yeah, you might have loved it. It's got to go poisoning the house so no one can be justified by the law because that's not the job of the law in verse 19 paul says i died to the law that i might live to god died to the law what does this mean i died to the law he died to needing keep needing to keep god's law we have died to needing to keep god's law because christ has kept god's law for us so we're saved and god is not a cosmic perfectionist Again, we always think about law-keeping and rule-keeping and obeying God and the, it, like, like God's up there with a the clipboard, this cosmic perfectionist. That's not what, what Paul is after here. God is the epitome of love and holiness. In other words, in God, there is no darkness and sin because he's perfectly loving and he's perfectly holy and in him he's light. He's perfectly... There is no darkness and sin. And in the end, if you read, you know, spoiler alert on the book of Revelation when you read the whole Bible... God is eradicating darkness and sin. In God, there is no darkness and sin. In the end, God is eradicating darkness and sin. So by coming himself in human flesh to live the perfectly loving and perfectly obedient and perfectly selfless life that we should all be living, but we're not, we can't, we won't, Christ alone went to the cross so that God could end darkness and sin without ending us. It's the good news. Which of you in this room would say you could stand in front of the mirror and look yourself in the eye and say, in my heart there is no darkness. In my heart there is no sin. I would love to know. And the answer is none of us, starting with this guy. So the good news of the gospel is that God has eradicated the guilt of my darkness and sin without eradicating me. And so I've died to the law. You've died to the law. Paul died to the law. That's what it means. And it's important that Paul doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, I died to the law, the end. He says, I died to the law so that 
might live to God. The great because and therefore of the gospel logic. Because of this, therefore that. It's not an if-then proposition. Hey, if your obedience is enough, then yeah, this is your house. Hey, if you live a good enough life this week, after you leave, you know, you're going to be all smiley after. You're going to have coffee, shake hands, you're going to love each other, but this week, if you don't read your Bible, pray every day, then you're dead, 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 right? Paul says, no, no, no. It's not an if-then proposition. It's been settled. Christ kept it. So now, therefore, I'm going to live now in light of this glorious, liberating reality. I died to the law so that I can live to God. Now, yes, it's true that if I stand up here and preach grace and preach Christ alone, apart from works, that inevitably, because it's always happened in church history, somebody will hear that and think, I died to the law, so who cares about the law? Yay! But that's not Christian faith. That's a lawless invention. You guys have heard me say that you know, many times. But living to God, this is what Paul gets at. I died to the law so I could live to God. Living to God, it's about enjoying and not earning. God's law is a faithful guide for you, precisely because Christ has already kept all of it for you. I remember I was at this fair, I think it was a fair, or a, it, was a, it had some rides for kids, but they were small and rusty and rickety and squeaky, you know, those kinds of, it wasn't like Canada's Wonderland. And they had this one ride where kids could drive these cars, but the cars were on a single rail. Not, they, weren't on a, they weren't on tracks like a train. There was just a single rail, but the kids had full control over steering the car, and the car could weave back and forth, but if it went too far, it would go bang, and it would hit this center rail. And the rail went all around a track, and so these kids could kind of, and their parents were sitting next to them, and all you heard was bang, 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 the whole time, because, of course, you got these little kids, bang, oh, okay, and then bang, 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 hitting these rails. Every once in a while, you would hear... just sounded like a witch burning and you'd look and there would be like this little toddler who some parent had been like it's okay honey you can drive and the kids like leaning on the wheel and the the rim is just grinding along the the rail you know that's a picture of christian obedience when you're very immature your christian obedience is like you're just grinding against god's law all the time the word of god keeps telling you Die to this. Let that go. I know that's contrary to your worldview. I know that the culture says this should be your ethic, right, about business. or It doesn't matter what it is. Your, your, your business ethic, the culture says this. Your relationally, your ethic says this. The ethics around marriage, sexuality, gender, this is what our culture is saying. And then God's word says, here's the ethic. And we just grind against it. I'm not sure. But then as we mature, you know, we kind of bang around like those toddlers. We're, you know, we're wanting to live for Jesus, but... The good news of the gospel is the law has been kept. You're not being accepted by God on the basis of how good that driving is. It's a settled issue. So now it's now guiding us. And Paul says, so I've died to, I've died to needing to get around the track without ever bumping this rail and doing it perfectly because Christ was the only one that could do that. But really what's being engendered in my heart is this desire to die to the law and then live to God. And that's, that, that's the picture there. And of course... The doctrine of sanctification, if I use that other big word, sanctification, right, not being the one-time work of Christ, but the ongoing work of Christ's spirit in our hearts, it's not complete in this life. None of us say, okay, well, whew, what a ride that was, but I'm totally 100% sanctified in this area of my life. It's amazing. I mean, I'm never going to sin in that area again. None of us, that's delusional. None of us, none of us are there. So what, what sanctification does is it gives us a great confidence 
that we're already accepted by God and we live according to that verdict. But then there's a great humility in terms of how we relate to one another in the church here as, one, as we are struggling with our sin. It gives us a great humility and transparency to be open and honest about our, our struggles with one another here in the church. And it also gives us great humility as we are missional to the city, thinking about our neighbors, thinking about those at work and our friends, those that we have opportunities to share the gospel with. We're not talking down to people. It's not, I'm so sanctified as a Christian and you're this unsanctified sinner and, and are you the kind of person who would bend your knee to, I'm not sure. Because you weren't the kind of person. That's the point of being justified by Christ alone. It changes the way we think about being missional in the city and sharing the gospel because the first thing that the cross does is it humbles us to the ground and then the second thing that the cross does is it lifts our soul to the sky. It humbles us to the ground because it says, my problem was so bad, the creator of the universe had to die for me. That's the severity of my condition. So therefore, I'm not better than any of my neighbors or if you're in school or on campus. We're not better than these people. We've been humbled to the ground. But now our soul is lifted to the sky because it doesn't just say, you're so bad, Christ had to die. It's saying, you're so loved by God that he willingly did. He wanted to. This is the good news of the gospel that gives us great confidence and those that we are sharing our hope with, our faith with, that it's not the eloquence of your words that's making you an effective minister of the gospel in this city. It's the power of God's grace as we share the words of his gospel. And so the guilt of all of our sin is removed by the cross of Christ. And let's move on as we close to this, the second gift. The grip of sin is being removed by the Spirit of Christ. And we've been talking about that a little bit. You look at verse 20, Paul says, It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live uh, to the glory of God, to the one who, who saved me. In English, in your English Bibles, it's two sentences. In the Greek, it's one sentence. And uh, the, reason, uh, the only reason I'm bringing that up is because it's two simultaneous thoughts that Paul intends to be taken together. So it's like, it's no longer I that I live, it's Christ. But if you just stop there and be like, okay, it's no longer me, it's Christ, there, Christ alone, that's what Christ alone means. If you just stop there, which Paul doesn't, then it's kind of like, well, then I just kind of kick back. It's all Jesus. Second half is, but the life that I now live, I live to the glory of the one who saved me. And if you forget the first half, and we just camp out in the life that we're living, if, I just, if you came here every Sunday and I just camped out in the life that you were living, the life that you were living, the life that you were living to the glory of God, to the glory of God, to the glory of God, and I just kept Jesus in the background, it wouldn't take long before Sunday morning felt like a divine help seminar, a self-help seminar to you. It wouldn't take long before your soul would not be raised and encouraged. Because even though the things that I would be encouraging you to do would be right and good and true and according to God's law, we have to take these two things together. It's no longer I live, but it's Christ who lives in me so that the life that I'm now living is being propelled and animated. It transforms the way that we relate to our suffering, our pain, our world, our lives, those that we're sharing the gospel with. It's propelling us. And the reason it's important is because what was happening in Galatia was the same thing that was happening in the Reformation, which is the same thing that can happen today if we get this wrong and we don't take these things together is Galatia was being dragged back into a knuckle-dragging religious life of duty. And Paul was like, whoa! The Christian life is not a knuckle-dragging religious life of duty. The Christian life is a laboring life of delight. 
delight that propels all kinds of duty. Right? Those of you who have children understand this. When, you, when a friend says to you, hey, we're thinking of having children, you know, what's it like? Nobody says, it's so easy, you should totally do it. Oh my gosh, can't even explain how easy it is having kids. It's just like having a bunch of like mini yous around that are like a little bit like you but not, but they're like, they're kind of like themselves but not. But seriously, you should have like 10 kids because it's so easy. Nobody talks about it like that because it's work. But it's also awesome, right? I can't imagine not having kids. I love sitting at my dinner table. I'm going to do it again today. You know, I love it. I sit there. They're sitting there. They're telling stories. And I'm like, yeah. But then there's times during the week where I'm not like, yeah. I'm like, ah. <laughs> All right? Which is a whole other sermon on my need for sanctification. But Paul is getting at this. Hey, it's the delight that's propelling and animating the Christian life of dude. So the, the guilt of sin is removed by the cross of Christ. The grip of sin is being removed increasingly, ongoing, by the Spirit of Christ. So that when God's law says things like, Thou shalt not, your heart hears that like, I will not. That's not even what I want anymore. This is the power of the gospel. Solus Christus. Christ alone. Verse 21, Paul says, If righteousness came through the law, Christ died for nothing. Wow. I love it. Oh, if righteousness could come with Christ plus what you're up to this weekend, man, free up your Sunday mornings because Jesus died for nothing. I mean, that's how serious Paul makes this thing. It's so powerful. It's amazing. Why? Because today would not be a day of rest if Jesus made your salvation possible and what you were about to do this week was making your salvation actual. Would not be good news. Sundays would not be a good time. This would not be restful. This would be knuckle-dragging, religiously burdensome, tragic, heretical train wreck. Are there any other adjectives I missed? Is it, can everybody think of any? Those weren't in my notes. I should have just kept going. Do you understand the gravity Paul puts on this? This is one of those letters in the Bible, by the way, that reveal that the Bible isn't like a, 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 whole, a holy man religion in the sense that it's not like God... Uh, you know, the whole Bible came down from heaven and it was written by some sort of a scribe who didn't really, you know, have any emotions. He just kind of was like writing things down. Like the emotion that comes out of Galatians, the way Paul writes this, is one of the things that helps us see the dual authorship here. Of like this is, in, this is being superintended by the Holy Spirit, but it's written by a guy who's watching the church go down this religious road of burden. And he's like, no. We could never be enough, we could never do enough, we could never obey enough, we could never love enough, we could never serve enough, we could never give enough. We could never be selfless enough, we could never be missional enough, we could never preach enough, share enough, go enough, care enough. But Christ is enough, and we're in Him. Christ alone, let's pray.